0: Hello and welcome to Coco Pods, a podcast of the Birth Center for Natural Deliveries Foundation. My name is Dr. Bola Sogadi. I'm a women's health specialist. On this podcast, we talk about all the issues relating to women's health and identify the problems and talk about ways in which we can mitigate the problems. Today, we are fortunate to have with us Dr. Raul Vangala, Thank you, Dr. Vangala, for coming to our podcast. Oh,
1: thanks for giving me this opportunity.
0: Dr. Vangala is an allergist immunologist in the Middle Georgia area and is affiliated with multiple hospitals. He is the director of the Allergy and Asthma Center of Middle Georgia with locations in Making and Warner Robins. Dr. Vangala received his medical degree from Osmania Medical College, NTRUHS, and has been in practice for more than 26 years. As a specialist in allergy and immunology, you treat disorders of the immune system, including food, insect, and respiratory allergies, eczema, contact dermatitis, asthma, and primary immune deficiencies. Can you just give us a synopsis of what that entails?
1: Okay, it deals with one part of the immune system, which uh, basically addresses how your immune system reacts to foreign antigens. And these antigens are different because antigens can be bacterial or wild. We deal with mostly what I call as the allergenic Antigens, and we are also trained to take care of primary immune deficiencies too. These are rare immune deficiencies which are due to defects in genetic makeup. So we deal with those and we do practice in that field. And it entails uh, mostly taking care of uh, people with um, hay fever, people with asthma, people with skin rashes, especially eczema or contact dermatitis, uh, patients who have recurrent sinusitis, and also patients who present with hives, that is called as urticaria, and patients who have urgent or acute um, anaphylactic reactions to either foods or insect bites or medications. So um, that's where our expertise is. But we also comment a lot about, because allergy is very affiliated to immunology, especially when we are associated with teaching. We also make an effort to teach um, whoever is going through our clinic to cover basics of immunology too, which will include vaccinations, a little bit of uh, what's coming down in um, tumor immunology, and a little bit of autoimmune diseases. There are different specialists who take care of those. But when we teach, we do address those too, because these, the foundations for both allergy and these diseases is basically immunology, how your immune system works to protect you. But when it gets dysregulated, dis- re- it can also hurt you. Wow, wow. You manage how your immune system
0: helps you. And when there's a problem, when it gets dysregulated, di- mm-hmm. how it can hurt you?
1: Uh, more often, we take care of people where it hurts the people. But in certain public health situations, like in, during pandemic right now, we take an active role in Um, teaching people about the importance of vaccinations, uh, importance of public health measures. In collaboration with all other specialties too, because we are all affected by that. So, and if the patients have some questions about any part of the immune system, because uh, immune system acts to protect us against infections too, we get a number of questions about what should I do? or the vaccine safe? Or what are the implications of... Because sometimes when you... What starts out as a viral infection can progress into a immune dysregulation too. And we see that with different viruses. We have started to see that with even uh, COVID-19 infections too. So um, sometimes patients come to us because they're confused about well, what the heck is happening because it's a new disease. So where it's going to go? So kind of give them the lead about how we need to approach this.
0: Even though we had, we, we were going to talk about COVID down the line, you mentioned it. What the heck is going on from your point of view with this covid pandemic
1: i think um, what has happened is with the covid pandemic is i think part of the blame is probably the disinformation which is going on through especially what do you call the social media It is good because uh, some of the people who are taking this social media and learning a lot of it, and I see sometimes people have become really smart and have started thinking about to protect themselves. But at the same time, the other side of the coin is it's very easy to influence uh, people uh, too. And it's very important for you to actually weed out and see where you get your information from. They have to be reputable um, resources. They have to be people who are accomplished. And most important is, is it going to work for the entire society or is it going to, because the rules made during pandemic and when you are having an infection are to protect us all. Here, uh, we either all sink together or we all help each other. That's, they are no Two different choices. The rules are made in such a way they all work for our benefit. So if you keep that in mind, you would be able to go and access the social media where you get to make yourself smart, to protect yourself and your family, and also protect your neighbors and fellow citizens too. That's where it comes from. So that's where it is happening. And there is a lot of interesting stuff which is coming out. This is not to alarm people, but this is mostly to protect us. The whole story is not written yet. We are learning, and sometimes with the learning, we do make changes in our recommendations. That does create confusion for common folks who are not attuned to practicing in the fields of science. in pe- Those people who practice in fields of science, we know that we change with the evidence, but that's not true in the regular world, so it confuses them. So I think there, um, the message has to be done in such a way that we it should be a one-on-one type of mes- message where we all share without a paternalistic route. That is, uh, we're not just pushing it on it but we're trying to make people understand why we are doing it and why we have changed our recommendations. That's where it comes. And I think we're doing a good effort to do that, but the disinformation is what is um, really affecting to carry this message to the people. And there are some technological advances which have taken place in the last... um, 40 years after the advent of uh, HIV infections in the 1980s. Uh, We have new fields of technology which have come up, which were really not well-versed in the past, but we can look at cells, molecules, the technology is there to look at it. We can rapidly make tests, rapidly um, uh, produce things. I mean, say, we would never have imagined that on January 19th of 2020, there was a Chinese scientist from Shanghai who put the genome sequence for this virus. On January, the next day, the Germans came up with a test for it. And the WHO, in about 10 to 15 days, actually gave the kits for this test to all the countries in the world so that they can start testing for this thing. I mean, so you have never seen this kind of rapid progress which has taken place where we have really spread the message about testing, knowing what the organism is, knowing what the sequence of the thing is, coming up with a test. And within about eight to 10 months, we have really good vaccines too, which are very efficacious uh, right now. But the virus which we are dealing with is also not an easy virus. The variants and other things, this is a challenge for us after the 1980s with HIV. I think we had some more scares like the Ebola and the SARS-1 and then MERS we had, but they didn't take off like and spread around the world as this one. This is very contagious and it is also evolving and mutating at a very rapid pace too compared to our expectations. So yes, vaccinations will protect a lot of us, but what I am looking at the evidence is we still need a lot of uh, mitigation works like uh, face masking and taking measures so that we get our boosters too to keep the antibody levels really high. Uh, Because ultimate thing is we want to protect as many lives as possible. And we need everybody to be in it together too, yeah. Wow.
0: there's going to be an eventual herd immunity because most people are vaccinated. Rather, people that are vaccinated still have to wear masks and perform social distancing and hand washing. Some people say, well, what is the benefit of vaccination if I'm vaccinated and I'm still wearing masks and doing all of this? Could you just throw a little bit more light on that?
1: Yes, That is a really good question because vaccination protects us from serious disease. Vaccination protects us against deaths, especially in elderly folks and people with pre-existing conditions. That is one part of the immune system which we are working with. That is, when you look at the immune system, there are different parts of the immune system. Virus virus is actually showing us challenges. So when you deal with the acute infections, the severity, uh, the hospitalizations and the deaths, we can decrease with vaccination. Now, what about vaccination in people as we age and with confounding secondary factors? There is a risk of breakthrough infections too. It's going to happen. But the effect from that in losing people and making them permanently disabled will be decreased. That is one part of the equation. The second part of the equation is, especially for the younger folks, they are not going to be, most of them are not going to be severely paying the price like people with other risk factors or aging population. But even mild infections, asymptomatic infections, or even moderate infections can be associated with long COVID. So the best thing is not to get it at all. Long COVID, COVID,
0: L-U-N-G.
1: Long COVID, long Mm. COVID is a term which we use for people who have beaten the infection, or they didn't even know that they had an infection, but they tested positive but they are having these weird symptoms which continue to prolong for a long time. They can be weeks, they can be months or for years. And that is where we are looking at it is because what happens is the virus can overpower your immune system too, but it can also stimulate your immune system to actually hurt you too. And sorry, that was L-O-N-G, long COVID. COVID. Long COVID, yes. And long COVID could be your heart rate could be fast or you can just have shortness of breath or you can develop cardiac arrhythmias or you slow deterioration, especially in the elderly people where the dementia onset gets more rapid than what we would expect them. And if they have a chronic disease, that can worsen. We have seen some reports of uh, decrease in uh, renal health because uh, renal disease with creatinine clearance is actually dropping after the covid too, And we have also seen a lot of people with lung afflictions too, which have resulted in fibrosis of the lungs. They have lost some lung capacity. So these are all things which we are going to deal with them as time progresses. We have started seeing them in some of the clinics too, These are the patients. We don't know what the outcomes are. Uh, Some of them may be long-ranging. That's the reason where the social mitigation measures with the face mask, trying to stay outdoors. And when you're indoors, especially have the face mask. And being vaccinated are very important. And uh, if you're indoors, also maintaining the social distancing too, is part of that too. And the last one, which we have not really enforced or talked about is ventilation. Because the air exchange in the rooms is very important in the school buildings, in the office buildings. And it is a daunting task because we have to look at and we have to make these changes too. But if we don't talk about this, we are not going to make those changes too. Because a circulating virus, if it is a chance to get outside, it is less contagious than if it keeps on recirculating in the same space. This is, I'm talking about the indoor space. Yeah. So that is one place we are lagging behind. I think the talk about the ventilation is not much.
0: Wow. So I guess, like you said, the story, this COVID uh, story is not all written yet. We're still learning, but you are saying that it's better not to just get the infection at all because there are consequences that we're also still learning about and still studying, you know, that can be severe, you know, to the people.
1: Severe or they can be mild too, but in a kid who is 10 years of age, who has 80 to 90 years to live, do we want him have some pullbacks in life. I don't think any of the parents or any of the citizens would want any of the young people to go through this. And that's where I think uh, they just announced yesterday that um, kids between 5 and 11 are going to have a chance of getting vaccinated. And I say, go, go and get it. Go and get it. Because that is going to give a lot of uh, protection. That will also decrease the infection. And even if you are infected, it is going to be mild and you're going to infect less people too.
0: Wow, wow. This is, thank you so much for that update on COVID. You know, we can never do any talk without talking about current events. So thank you so much. In pregnancy, you know, women with asthma tend to worry about how pregnancy will affect their breathing and if the medications that we use for asthma will harm the baby. And asthma is a very common condition, period, and it's common among pregnant women. And if it's not properly controlled, it can lead to complications. And by working with medical professionals, most women can breathe easily. Can you tell us, just to spin off from COVID and the effects on the lungs and stuff like that, can you tell us about asthma in pregnancy and with the COVID pandemic ongoing? You talked about some of the things We should be aware of, but what are the additional challenges that a pregnant woman with asthma can have, period, and can have with COVID?
1: Okay. The COVID itself causes challenges uh, because the way we are seeing the patients is not on -on one-on-one basis. I mean, so we, we see them on one-on-one basis, but it's uh, some of it is being done by telehealth too, and some of it is um, by fear. The patients don't want to get themselves exposed to; they're not getting out and talking to their providers. They should still be in touch with their providers, especially if you have chronic diseases. And if you're pregnant, then it is an added added burden. I mean, so it's not just with asthma. I think if you have diabetes or you have heart disease or hypertension or asthma, and then you, you're pregnant, your concerns are the same. How do I manage my chronic condition? And how do I uh, manage my pregnancy? And at the same time, some of the logistics from COVID also affect that too. So if you keep clear communications with the patients, um, with your physicians, because all the physicians are still available to you and they're still available either through the office visits or the telehealth or telephone calls, you should not lose an opportunity if you have a question. There's no question which is dumb. Every question is a valid question and every provider would be there to help you out, to deal with those questions too. So seek out care. When a lady is going through pregnancy and she has a chronic condition, there are two burdens. One is how do I take care of myself and how do I protect my kid? So to protect yourself, you have to take care of your disease. That's number one. To protect the kid, you still have to take care of yourself. And your concerns about the side effects of the medications affecting the pregnancy are very valid. But we are at a stage where we know what the risks and benefits of each disease has on the maternal health, which affects the fetal health and the pregnancy. So you should discuss with your provider How do you balance them? Ask questions. I'm on, dark. I'm on this medication. Is it safe? It was safe to me and I was doing really well. Should I continue that? Or are there safer alternatives? What should I do? Don't stop your medications on your own. Ask. Always ask. And always, you have to preserve your health to take care of the pregnancy, to take care of the child. And to have a good maternal outcome and a good outcome for the fetus and the baby, I think you have to control any chronic condition, whether it is asthma, whether it is diabetes, whether it is autoimmune disease, or whether it is high blood pressure, or if you have renal disease, or if you have cardiac disease, the same rules go for all the chronic diseases is you have to control that because maternal health does affect the fetus.
0: Well, in addition to asthma, pregnancy may be complicated by new onset or pre-existing allergic disease, including rhinitis, conditions called urticaria, angioedema, or atopic dermatitis. What is your general approach to treating Uh, some of these allergic uh, conditions?
1: One thing we have an advantage over other chronic diseases in allergies, avoidance. See, if you have high blood pressure, yeah, you have avoidance of salt and other things in your diet. But here is uh, the thing is avoidance of foods, avoidance of allergens, avoidance of pollutants, avoidance of infections. These all help you to knowing what are the triggers which precipitate the symptoms, either of asthma or rhinitis or eczema, or what causes urticaria, or what causes anaphylaxis? These anaphylaxis is where you have acute reactions to foods or to insect bites or medications. These how do you avoid? So that's the first step is avoidance. In our subspecialty, we preach avoidance. The reason we start out with avoidance and then we go to the medications. And when you have a chronic situation, both of them are important because uh, when you trigger off without avoidance, then you're going to have relapses of your disease. And when you get off your medications too, you will have relapses of the disease. So the whole thing is to keep the disease under remission so that you do not have symptoms and you do not have triggers which cause those relapses. And and you did
0: talk about, you know, that some people can develop an extreme allergy to some things and that can even lead to an extreme life-threatening emergency in which you you mentioned as anaphylaxis. How can we recognize and manage anaphylaxis even in low resource settings?
1: The first thing in anaphylaxis is what you say 90% or 95% of the cases, you'll have skin reactions. They can include just itching all over the body or rash or hives or you know, wheels, which are large, which we call them as angioedema or lip swelling, tongue swelling, and then face swelling. And it can progress to closure of your throat, which we call as uh, laryngeal edema, which is life-threatening. We can also wheeze like asthmatics. It is sudden, unlike in asthma where it starts with a cough and over the course of hours or days it progresses. Here it will be sudden after you are triggered off by something which you have known in the past to cause the problem or it could be a new one too because you can develop allergies all through your life. Other symptoms here include your blood pressure can decrease and you can have Cramping of the abdomen with diarrhea; these are all symptoms of anaphylaxis. So, if you have an insect, insult like an insect bite, or if you have a food like a, uh, like a peanut, or tree nuts, or shellfish, or fish, which are very more prone to cause, but there are other foods which can cause. These are very common food allergens, and fire ants, bees, wasps. Uh, hornets and yellow jackets. Um, These are insects which can cause or sometimes medications can cause these reactions too. You can be prescribed an antibiotic or latex can cause this reaction too and it could be new onset or you already have known. If you have already known, you would make sure during the pregnancy you're going to avoid these triggers. If they are new onset, if you have these symptoms, you need to seek out care. And if it is life-threatening, you should not hesitate to go through the emergency room and have them take care of you. And then sit with your physician and talk to them. And the first thing is, whatever you have suspicions you had, you will avoid them until it is confirmed.
0: This has happened before. Do you recommend maybe the use of epinephrine or, I mean, what yes. what, what can we do? Assuming yeah. that, you know. Uh,
1: you When you have anaphylaxis and you know what the triggers are and you know that sometimes you are amazing at managing these triggers, but in a few situations I'll talk to you about is like fish and shellfish or sometimes even with the peanuts and tree nuts too. We don't know if they're mixed in other foods you go to a restaurant or you go to a relative or a friend and they've cooked and they've made sure that nothing is there, but something can sneak in. And then that can cause a reaction too. So you should always have access to EpiPen. You should know how to use the EpiPen. And after you use the EpiPen, you should always ask somebody to take you to the closest emergency room or closest place where you can get help. That's Very essential because some of these anaphylactic reactions, they respond to EpiPen really well. But the best thing is to have somebody who has a knowledge of these to look at you and say you're safe and you do not need hospitalization. They have observed you and your symptoms have gone away. Or they can even prescribe medications which can stop the progression of the symptoms.
0: Wow, wow. So, you know, basically you've, you've said that, you know, anaphylaxis, they can be severe. They can be potentially life-threatening after exposure to an allergen. And rapid recognition is important. From an ob point of view, this is also important as decreasing oxygen to the mom and decreasing blood pressure can be fatal to both the mother and the baby. And then just to recap, you talked about having epinephrine and knowing how to use it And most importantly, even after you've administered it, still go to the hospital Hospital. for completion of evaluation and care.
1: Yeah. And there are two things which come in pregnancy too. One is you use the EpiPen and whoever is close to you or you yourself should lie on the left side of uh, your chest because uh, that prevents the inferior vena cava compression from the gravid uterus. You don't want the perfusion to the fetus and the mother to be affected at all. So you can help with the perfusion and you should also raise your legs a little up so that you can return the venous flow and the perfusion too. Those are two things compared to people who are not pregnant. Those are two things because you have a gravid uterus there and um, you want the baby not to be perfused at all times. Uh, Those are two additional uh, steps you always have to take when you are pregnant and you have anaphylaxis until you go to the hospital. Even in the hospital too, they should let you stay on the left side of the body and then raise your legs up. That way they can, until you are managed really well and you get out of the woods, that would be a good thing to do. So mom laying on the left side so that the blood flow Flow. In the
0: big vessels yes. can keep flowing, going get into the baby. And You know, are colds common? More common in pregnant women? Just the common cold? <clears> you know, yes. You know, just
1: yeah. What happens in pregnancy is there is there are immune changes. Yeah. What happens with the immune system in pregnancy is you're taking a it's like taking a graft. Uh, a graft which naturally you are supposed to reject anything which is foreign.
0: So we are going to talk about that yeah. down the line because I want to know why a baby that has the genetic composition of not only the mother but of a father whose genetic makeup is foreign to that mom, yeah. why is that baby not rejected by the mom? So I want us to talk about that later. Yeah, but I'm. I'm yeah. going. To, um, the reason yeah. I'm
1: talking about it, yeah. to combat that, yeah you want to develop tolerance.
0: Tolerance, yeah. yeah.
1: So when you're dealing, when you're trying to become tolerant to the fetus. The baby, yeah. Which is half foreign to you.
0: Yes. Yeah, half
1: foreign to you. You develop immune mechanisms, which actually increase the risk of infections. Ah. Yeah. And that's where the thing comes in because they have to damp down the immune system and it is a fine balance. That's the reason the mothers are more prone to infections. Yeah, so that is a very valid point. Yes, they are more prone for infections. It's just, that's the nature of the thing is there is never, you gain some and you lose some kind of thing. So you're protecting the fetus from getting rejected, but the mother is at an increased risk for infection. It's a fine balance. Is it fine? And the injections are
0: like pregnancy rhinitis. Actually, the common cold of pregnancy has a name, right? Yes. Pregnancy rhinitis. And, you know, it's like a cold. The The nasal mucosa is swollen. What what kind of, does it need treatment? Or what can we use and yeah. what can we the, not those use? Those
1: are mostly hormonal to keep the fetus going again. Yes. Um, so these hormones cause nasal congestion. So one way to do it is not to do de- treated with uh, medications at all, but you can use saline nasal sprays and those would be the best ones. You should not absolutely use any nasal decongestants or oral decongestants because they do have effects on the fetus. So that's one place. And then I think what happens in the pregnancy-induced um, rhinitis, the antihistamines don't have a big role too. I mean, say they're safe, but they're not health. Whenever we use medications, we have to use medications which help you. The risk-benefit ratio, the benefits have to be, and that's what we see in patients with allergic rhinitis, with asthma, with eczema. We see the benefits of those medications. But in pregnancy-induced rhinitis, we don't see the benefits. But to get symptomatic relief, sometimes you tend to use oral decongestants or nasal decongestants, which are harmful to the fetus and also to the mother to a certain extent too. So it's better not to use those.
0: Because it will pass over time. Yeah, because it's it will yeah, pass over yeah, time. Yeah. Yeah. Since you went ahead and touched on this, why does a mother's immune system not reject a developing baby as foreign tissue? And yet people can get a liver, kidney or lung transplant and it keeps. After all, the baby has cells from its father also and these cells are different from that of the mom and actually foreign to that of the mom. Why do we have successful pregnancies and why at times do we have unsuccessful pregnancies? Is there like a, a failure in whatever this mechanism is?
1: Okay.